Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called Rise to Life and is the 13th teaching in our John study. It was taught by Mark Nelson on January 24th, 2021. Thanks for listening. Hey, Crossings, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us here. Let's, uh, let's study a little bit. We're going to enter into the, the Word, to the Scripture, and today, again, we're going to enter into the story of Jesus by way of the book of John. Um, by the way, just a quick reminder. So we have these books that are written, and, and the picture's going to come up on your screen right now. These are written by the, some very talented people here at Crossings. Each chapter is by a different person. And they take us through week by week the same study we're doing on Sunday. So I'd recommend you um, look it up if you want to. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy, buy a hard copy for $10, a Kindle for $8. And simply search the phrase that's on your screen right now. The Book of John, a study guide for the Crossings community. If you go into Amazon, type that phrase in, you'll be able to, uh, to find it uh, there. We'd love for you to to look at it before the teaching, after the teaching. Uh, sometimes it goes hand in hand with it. Sometimes it's a, it's a little, um, goes a different angle. But we think it's an incredible companion for this study of John. We've been entering into the study of John since September. And um, we always do that in our community where we begin um, a longer series in the fall and usually extend it to the spring. This has felt different uh, to me because and I don't know if it's you too, but we're not physically together and, and there's so many distractions going on. I think it's been harder to remember where we are in the story because every time we do this, it feels like we're journeying together. That's been harder since we're separate. It's been harder because we're not together. And because of that, I want to make sure we understand how good this book is. I want us to understand how good a journey it is to enter into the book of John. John is my favorite to study. There, there's no doubt about that. The New Testament scholar Daryl Johnson says this, There simply is no book in all of human literature like the book of John. For there is simply no other subject like the subject of the book of John. And he says, There is simply no other story like the story that we're going to enter into today. The story that we're going to enter into today, as we study together here, is a story uh, about the smell of death. And, and I guess, in some ways, it's also about the smell of life. L let me ask you this uh, before we get into the text. What's the worst thing you've ever smelled? <laughs> if we were together, I would have you feedback. Um, we can't do that. But anything that's that's really bad, you've probably tried to forget it. I'm going to assume. If you go, the worst smell has been this in my life and I've tried to forget it as much as I can. So I Googled worst smell ever, as I'm prone to do, and this is what came up. In 1998, Pamela Dalton, a cognitive psychologist, was tasked with developing a stink bomb for the Department of Defense. Her experiments found that people from different backgrounds in different parts of the world who grew up smelling and eating different things often completely disagreed about which smells were good and which smells were bad. The best candidate Dr. Dalton found for a uni universally distasteful smell 
was something called U.S. government standard bathroom malodor. It's a substance that was designed to mimic the scent, <laughs> the scent of military field latrines in order to test cleaning products. So she chose <laughs> this aroma, aromatic liquid as the base of her stink bomb recipe. The resulting formula uh, she called stench soup. <laughs> Some say it's the worst smell ever created. Now, good news for us all. Uh, we are on Zoom, so I cannot test that theory. And because you know if we are all together, I'd want to. <laughs> uh, this is not a scratch and sniff teaching, okay? There's, there's no smell like that. But Mary Roach, who is a science writer, is one of the few humans who tried inhaling stench soup, she said. And then she wrote about it. She described the aroma as, quote, Satan on a throne of rotting onions. <laughs> so the question is, is stench soup the really the worst smell in the world? Maybe. But for some reason, though, today in the story, I think we have a strong competitor. We're in John chapter 11. And let me begin with verse 1. And in verse 1, we're introduced to three people. There was a certain man who was very ill. He was known as Lazarus from Bethany, which is the hometown of Mary and her sister Martha. Okay, now we're going to learn more about Mary and Martha as the weeks go on. But initially know this. Martha's the doer in the family, uh, always in motion. Mary is a little quieter, uh, a little more still. Jesus is evidently friends of all three. Then verse 3 tells us, and we're going to put this on the screen for you. Verse 3 says, their brother Lazarus became deathly ill. So Mary, Martha, Lazarus, brother and sisters. So the sisters immediately sent a message to Jesus, which said, Lord, the one you love is very ill. So now this is not like the sniffles. Okay, this is serious stuff. Verse 4, Jesus heard the message. And Jesus responded by saying, his sickness will not end in his death, but will bring great glory to God. As these events unfold, the Son of God will be exalted. Jesus dearly loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. However, after receiving this news, he waited two more days where he was. So, Jesus, as he is prone to do, is once again not meeting, not meeting people's expectation. He's heard his dear friend is sick, really sick, but he waits two days. Verse 7, also on the screen. Jesus tells the disciples, it's time to return to Judea. The disciples respond with, okay, teacher, the last time you were there, some Jews attempted to execute you by crushing you with stones. Why would you want to go back? Tell me, doesn't make sense. Verse 11, Jesus briefly pauses. Then he says, our friend Lazarus has gone to sleep, so I will go awaken him. The disciples respond, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll be all right. Jesus used sleep as a metaphor for death, but the disciples took him literally and did not understand. Verse 14, then Jesus spoke plainly. Okay, Lazarus is dead. And I'm grateful for your sakes that I was not there when he died. Now you will see and believe. Gather yourselves and let's go to him. Thomas then says to the disciples, all right, let's go so we can die with him. <laughs> Thomas kind of has this Eeyore effect to him. Uh, it's kind of like you can read that line like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. 
let's go so we can die with him. You know, it's like this, all right, Jesus, we're going to go. You're going to get killed here, but we're going to go. Verse 17, as Jesus was approaching Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem, he heard that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. So he's died four days ago. Now, have you ever wondered why this book of John gives us the details of four days? Well, I think there's a specific reason. Jewish beliefs said that the spirit of the deceased, when someone would die, their spirit would hover over the body for three days. But after those three days, the body would become so disfigured that the spirit would no longer recognize it and would depart. So then, from the Jewish perspective, the Jewish point of view on death, resurrection after three days would be even more impossible. The fourth day is the day that hope finally dies. So here on day fourth, day four, Lazarus is really gone. Verse 19, now many people had come to comfort Mary and Martha as they mourned the loss of their brother. Martha went to meet Jesus when word arrived that he was approaching Bethany. But Mary, true to their character, stayed behind at the house. Martha says, Lord, if you'd been with us, Jesus, if you'd been with us, my brother would not have died. Even so, I still believe that anything you ask of God will be done. Jesus said, this great line, your brother will rise to life. Martha says, I know he will. He will rise again when everyone is resurrected on the last day. This was part of the religious teaching that they were brought up with. Verse 25, Jesus said this to her, I am the resurrection and the source of all life. Those who believe in me will live even in death. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never truly die. Do you believe this? He asked her. This is one of those um, Jesus stare moments. Like when he just peers into your soul, there's these spaces in scripture where I think Jesus asked something and then he just looks at the, the character, at least in my imagination. So he says to her, everyone who lives and believes in me will truly die. Do you believe this? And he just looks at her. And then I think after a pause, Martha responded this way, according to verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the anointed, the liberating king, God's own son, who we have heard is coming into the world. Martha, after making this confession, goes and gets Mary. Mary quickly comes out to meet Jesus. And we're told by scripture that the crowd follows her out. Mary falls at the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would still be alive. And then in verse 33, and this is on the screen. When Jesus saw Mary's profound grief and the moaning and weeping of her companions, he was deeply moved by their pain in his spirit and was intensely troubled. Jesus said, where have you laid his body? The Jews said, come and see, Lord. And then there's the verse that everybody uses when they play the Bible memorization game. John eleven thirty five. 35. As they walked, Jesus wept. <laughs> Those two words are usually all of verse 35. And everyone noticed how much Jesus must have loved Lazarus. But others were skeptical. Others said, if this man can give sight to the blind, he could have kept him from dying. So they're basically saying, why didn't you show up, Jesus? I imagine Jesus gave them one of the side looks. Like when they said, look, you gave sight to the blind. You could have kept him from dying. And Jesus looked at him like, all right be quiet because Jesus says this he goes he first Jesus approaches the stove the the tomb and the tomb is like this just little like a small cave covered by a massive stone 
that they have rolled over to cover the mouth of it. Jesus says in verse 39, remove the stone. Martha says, Lord, he's been dead four days. Again, the four days thing, his spirit's gone. She says, the stench will be unbearable because death really smells. Verse 40, Jesus says, remember I told you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Well, they removed the stone and Jesus, which I imagine there was a whiff of death that came out of that tomb, but Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and he says this in verse 41, Father, I'm grateful that you have heard me. I know that you're always listening, but I proclaim it loudly so that everyone here will believe you have sent me. After these words, he called out in a thunderous voice. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Then the man who was dead walked out of the tomb, bound from head to toe in a burial shroud. Now it says, Lazarus walked out. That's what the scripture says. But I think walk is probably not accurate. I think it was more of a wobble because he was all wrapped up in this burial shroud. And a burial shroud is like made of strips that are of cloth that are just wrapped around layer after layer after layer. So he would have kind of had to walk like this. If you, if you can't separate your legs, I can't obviously do it here on video. But here's a picture of what a burial shroud would look like. And this is actually uh, on Pinterest, uh, believe it or not. When you Google burial shroud, Pinterest, Pinterest gives you pictures. This is what it would look like. So when it says that he came to life and then walked out, he wobbles out. He, he barely gets out. And then Jesus tells those that are watching, untie him, let him go. Jesus wasn't going to get that close to the guy. He smelled bad. So he says, untie him, let him go. So they unwrap him. They would, and the smell would have been horrific. But there he was, reeking of the stench of death and walking around. Verse 45 says, as a result, Many of the Jews who had come with Mary saw what had happened and believed in him. Now remember, that is the entire point of the book of John. Belief. Belief in this Jesus. We see that all throughout the book of John. And here at this point, many believed, many saw what Jesus had done and believed. Well, other religious leaders, uh, others went to the religious leaders and reported what Jesus had done. And immediately the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the high council. Here it says in verse 47, the Pharisees said, what are we going to do about this man? He's performing many miracles. If we don't stop this now, every man, woman, and child will believe in him. You know what will happen next? The Romans will think he's mounting a revolution and will destroy our temple. It will be the end of our nation. The religious leaders are worried about losing their power to the way of Jesus. They're worried about losing their control, their authority to a simpler way of Jesus, the right way of Jesus. Verse 53 tells us in that moment, they cemented their intentions to have Jesus executed. It's a preview of where the story is going to take us over the next few weeks. Now, I've always wondered um, when I've read this story, Lazarus dies. He's good friends with Jesus beforehand. Uh, he's good friends with Mary and Martha, Jesus is. Uh, Lazarus sisters. I always wondered what the relationship was like after the resurrection. Like from then on, what happened? Well, Michael Card in his book, Parable of Joy, uh, he speculates 
what someone who is a follower of Jesus might write about, about Lazarus after his resurrection. Card writes this, after that day, Lazarus never left Jesus' side. He was with us at mealtime. He followed us into the city. Even though he knew the Jews wanted now to kill him as well, Lazarus, he followed us like a puppy, like a lamb. He would laugh at the most inopportune moments. How do you relate to a dead man come alive again? How was he supposed to relate to us? From time to time, I would see him off to the side, talking quietly with Jesus. They seemed to share a secret that they kept only to themselves. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? One thing I think Lazarus would not do is I don't think he would keep the grave close. I don't think he would have kept the burial shroud, you know, just to remember what it was like to be dead. Um, I am told by my wife many, many times that I am uh, very sentimental about things. And um, this week, you may notice, I'm in a new space. So this is my new office space at Johnson University. And, and so uh, we've been carrying stuff in all week. And my Jesus window hasn't been hung yet. It's, it'll be hung up soon. But, but I also realized that she's right. I am very sentiment, sentimental about things. And I keep things to remember, and I'm actually gonna show you some things. I actually keep things to remember places and times and people. Like, for example, I'm not gonna go into all the details, but here is a White Castle uh, mug with marshmallows from about the year 1990 in them. And a baseball with a very kind little thing from a friend of mine. Uh, I have, here, I have these cars that, that I've used before. Some of you remember when I talk about the story about moving cars. These are very specific to my family. I have um, uh, this here that uh, says, helping people find their way back to God, and it has shalom on it. It was given to me by Amelia Evelyn, and uh, it's special, and it's going to stay on my shelf. You're going to have to follow me now, Brad. So over here, uh, my keepsakes, I have a Mr. T doll. I know, right? So this was uh, talking about accountability with someone. This is an orange from 1988 that's been sitting on my shelf. I could tell you this story, but that's not the point. Um, I have things on my desk over here too. Like in this cup, I have, here's an acorn that Jude Wolf gave me one day out in front of Four Market Square. I have all of these little sentimental things that I keep uh, for various reasons, and, and as, my wife, as I told you, my wife doesn't always agree with it all. Sorry, I'm trying to get scooted back up here. I have a lot of them to remember people and places and things, but keeping that which literally represents death, none of these things smell, even the marshmallows, they've been there a long time. But to keep, like, grave clothes, like to keep something that brings about a bad memory, to keep something that represents death, there's nothing sentimental about that. that. That approaches or crosses a whole nother line. Why would anybody ever consider keeping those things? Yet, sometimes the old, the past, is hard to let go of. Sometimes the grave clothes mentality is hard to put behind us. And because it is, sometimes as hard as it is to believe, I actually believe we find ourselves taking out our stench soup smelling grave clothes and taking a big whiff. 
I know it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. I, I think it's what we do. It's when we struggle with whatever addiction we might have. We find freedom, we find life from death, but sometimes we just keep going back to it. It's those doggone grave clothes. A lot of times it's because life in a grave, it's all we've ever known, you know? Like, sometimes death becomes comfortable. I, I'm not sure, but, but I think there's something going on in us. Why else, um, why else would someone marry an alcoholic even though they have a parent who's been an alcoholic? It's all we've ever known. It's, it's what we think life is supposed to be. Or think about relationships like dating relationships. Why in relationships are people drawn to the same kind of guy over and over, or the same kind of girl over and over? Even though it always ends up bad, we get back in those same things. It's like we go back to the death because it's all we've ever known and we repeat the same mistakes over and over and out comes those stinking grave clothes. But a grave tending life is not the life of people who follow Jesus. It's just not. Here's, Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter four, I'm gonna put it on the screen. That's no life for you. You learned Christ, you learned Jesus. My assumption is that you have paid careful attention to him, been well instructed in the truth precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It is rotten through and through. Get rid of it, like grave clothes, right? And then take out, then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. Absolutely. This is what new life in Jesus means. There's an old story about a form of capital punishment. I don't know the era. I don't know uh, when this happened, how it happened exactly. But supposedly one form of capital punishment is they would take, sentence a man to death and they would take him to a prison and they would chain him to a wall and at the same time chain him to a dead body, <laughs> recently dead body. And for the rest of his existence, he was chained to that dead body. And the death and the disease and being near that body would slowly eat away at his body. And the man, what a horrific way to be sentenced to death. But here's what I see today. Similarly, people tying to themselves to so much that doesn't give life. Tying ourselves to things that you know, no matter how much time you put into it, no life comes from it. It's the same thing as being chained to a dead body. Last week, Molly talked about John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, it has that line about we're promised abundant life with, with God. This life that Jesus gives us is abundant life. The message version says, the more and the better life. There's a lot of things that have happened over the last few weeks that have brought us death. And there are a few things that have happened that we, we have become optimistic about, that they're gonna bring us life. We have a choice to go towards the life, not towards the death. We have a choice to hang around with Jesus, to listen to him tell us the things he wants us to know, or we can go back and take the grave clothes out and take big whiffs. 
when we do that, when we can't let that past go and move on to what Jesus calls us to, then it's like being chained to a dead body and it sucks the life out of us. The novelist poet Charles Bukowski wrote this, gonna put it on the screen. What is terrible, he says, is not death, but the lives people live or don't live up until their death. Soon they forget how to think. They let others think for them. Their brains are stuffed with cotton. They look ugly, they talk ugly, they walk ugly. Play them the great music of the centuries and they cannot hear it. Most people's deaths are a sham. There's nothing left to die. Those last two lines, killer, right? Most people's deaths are a sham because there's nothing left to die. I would hope in a season that has been filled, it has been a season of a whole lot of death, that we could find a way to really live abundant, more, better, and now. Resurrected life starts now. Because of the resurrection, not Lazarus's, but Jesus, because of the resurrection, I believe we are called to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, yes, but even more so to be the site where the resurrection takes place. I believe we are called to be a part of the continual insistence that the resurrection of Jesus announces that there is a new creation bursting forth right here, right now, in the midst of this one, and it has nothing to do with dragging those stupid grave clothes along with us. It simply comes with this belief that Martha spoke to Jesus, that I believe you are the resurrection and life. Because Jesus said in verse 11, 25, message version, you don't have to wait for the end. I am right now resurrection and life. Right now, you don't have to wait to the end. Right now, right here, he is resurrection and life. We have to find a way to leave that behind, cling to it, unchain ourselves from whatever it is, and move forward together as a community, finding the way back to God. Let's pray together. Father, may we find life in you, resurrected life, not grave-tending, timid life, but resurrection life that calls us to the more and the better. May we leave behind all that we need to leave behind, move forward to what you call us towards. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. We'd love for you to take a moment now, um, take a piece of the bread, take, take the cup, do what Jesus gave us to remember him by, to take the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, and enter into this story in a way that claims that life. Breathe deep of the life that we are given.